2: hi and welcome my name is adam b levine i'm the podcast editor here at coindesk and today we'll be discussing recent actions taken by u.s president donald trump on social media and specifically protections offered by section 230 of the communications decency act this is the conversation at coindesk today's episode is brought to you by bitstamp and cypher trace for this conversation i'm joined by our chief content officer michael casey and privacy reporter ben powers michael ben say hello Hi, everybody. Michael Casey here. This is Ben. Thanks for having me. For today's complex topic, we're honored to be joined by two experts. Nadine Strawson, author of the new book, System Override, How Bitcoin, Blockchain, Free Speech, and Free Tech Change Everything. Hello.
3: Hi there. Great to be here.
2: And Amy James, CEO of Alexandria Labs and co-inventor of the Open Index Protocol. Hi, Amy.
4: Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks, everybody, for being here. We appreciate that it's kind of a crazy time right now. But to set the stage, last week we saw Twitter, the global standard and favorite social media platform of U.S. President Donald Trump, begin appending fact checks to a selection of Trump's controversial tweets. This, in turn, set off a firestorm of controversy, with many claiming that the social media platform had crossed the line from neutral platform to editorializing publisher. This matters because neutral platforms are protected from lawsuits and liability by a piece of law commonly known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, passed by Congress in the 90s. Many credit that piece of legislation with the growth of a free and open internet by allowing initially small platforms to grow without what otherwise would have been a massive legal overhang. Time permitting, in today's discussion, we'll be tackling this topic from several angles. First, we'll talk about the First Amendment and Section 230 itself, what it does and doesn't do as it pertains to social media platforms and moderation. Then we'll talk about fairness and the if you don't like it, leave argument, as well as related topics. We'll talk about business models and assumptions implicit in the current state of dominant social media platforms before turning to alternatives or possible solutions in decentralized protocols and multilayered approaches to moderation and censorship. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So to kick us off, Nadine, uh, do you mind walking us through sort of what Section 230 does and doesn't do when it comes to social media platforms? And if you can get the First Amendment in there, too, and a little bit of an explanation of sort of how that interacts with the government versus private platforms, I would be much obliged.
3: Absolutely, Adam. And your the way you asked the question uh, underscores that you know something that many members of the public, I think most, do not know, which is that. The First Amendment, with its wonderful free speech and free press guarantees, only constrains the federal government and state governments and local governments. It does not constrain private sector actors. So uh, the First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law, abridging the freedom of speech for the press and so forth. Uh, The Supreme Court has interpreted the word Congress to extend to any government official or agency. But it does not extend to any private sector actors. So, Facebook, Twitter, all of the other social media companies, along with traditional media companies, not only do not have to respect free speech rights of anybody who seeks to use their platforms, moreover, they themselves have their own First Amendment rights. And those rights include the traditional editorial functions of deciding who gets to participate and who doesn't get to participate, what particular uh, posts will get to be aired and which ones will not get to be aired. That First Amendment protection is very important. And Congress actually went beyond that to guarantee additional layers of protection to all online platforms, including social media companies, when it passed what's now usually referred to as Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, 230 for short. And interestingly enough, this was widely supported. Uh, It was bipartisan, since when do we see that? It was concocted by a leading Republican and a leading Democrat, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, and virtually nobody in Congress voted against it. And what it does is to give immunity to all online platforms for anything they host on that platform that is put up by third parties, by other speakers. And so you can understand that this is incredibly important in an era where we now have just huge quantities of posts being put up by third parties. It just internet would not exist, Uh, social media platforms would not exist if these companies were liable, potentially liable for what third parties say. Now, there were a couple of exceptions that were built into Section 230, most importantly, for posts that violate federal criminal law or copyright law. Uh, A few years ago, there was an amendment that added yet Another exception for materially related to sex trafficking, it may sound very good, but it's had a terrible chilling effect on internet free speech, which I think really shows the wisdom of the original Section 230. There's one other aspect of Section 230, which is really, really important. And that is the second provision, which says that any platform may, if it chooses to, Not post something or delete something that it considers to be objectionable as long as it acts in good faith. And the reason why that was put in was to distinguish online platforms from traditional publishers. Uh, Traditional publishers, when they engage in selective decisions, you know, selectively blocking certain content, that makes them responsible for everything that they don't choose to block. So Congress wanted to give platforms really wide open discretion. They could engage in content moderation if they wanted to. Congress was actually seeking to encourage that, to make the internet a friendly environment for families and children. In those early days, there was great fear that there would be a lot of child porn and and other pornography that would be offering to parents and families. They could engage in that kind of selective moderation without then becoming responsible for every single post that was put up, and the internet wouldn't have blossomed into in effect, a platform for everybody in the world potentially if section two thirty did not exist. I think Jeff Kosef, who's a professor, wrote a wonderful book that whose title really summarizes it all the twenty six Words that created the internet and because the whole provision is really or the most important part of it, is only 26 words long.
2: Let's talk for a moment about liability under Section 230. You mentioned that the protections are granted basically because the speech isn't coming from the platform. The platform very much is playing the role of perhaps a a public space. And so while there are protections given to the platform, someone who is actually doing the speaking, they have no such protections. They're still vulnerable under that statute, right?
3: That's exactly correct. If somebody posts something that would be independently illegal or subject to civil damages, such as defamation or a threat, that they could independently be subject to legal action, but the platform itself would not be. It's similar to just think of a traditional sort of common carrier like uh, the landline telephone company. If you use the telephone line to extract a bribe or uh, you know, extortion, that's illegal. You could be prosecuted, but the phone company can't be.
2: Let's talk about good faith for a second within Section 230. Good faith is the idea that a platform can make moderation decisions on its own. And the assumption is that they're not doing it for any sort of reason other than the good management of their platform. And as an independent platform, that's a private company, they have the right to do that under the First Amendment. Is that correct?
3: Exactly. And that's been interpreted, I should say that there's been a lot of litigation about how Section 230 should be interpreted in real-world factual situations. And it's fair to say that courts have interpreted it very, very broadly in light of the plain language and in light of what they considered to be Congress's purpose in passing the law. So they've really applied the immunity shield with very, very few exceptions. And that good faith was not intended to be a strict test, just to make sure that there's some reasonable basis for it.
2: I guess the question that that comes to me is, where is the line between a neutral platform versus a publisher when it comes to these sorts of decisions? Because from a moderation standpoint, that feels like it's almost always going to be a subtractive process. The platform comes in, they say, this is unacceptable, and they remove it. The platform appending something to speech that has been put onto their platform by someone else who isn't protected by section two thirty that feels like it's something different, and I think that that perhaps is the crux of the issue here, at least what's catalyzed this so d- does does that question make sense I
3: understand where the question is coming from Adam, because somehow in the political dialogue, there are so many references to publisher versus distributor, the platform is supposed to be neutral, and you know. I don't know where those ideas came from because they do not come from Section 230 itself. There's absolutely nothing in the law itself or in the legislative history that indicates that anybody contemplated that the platforms would be neutral or not. There was also no concern about analogizing to the traditional role of the publisher. If anything, the intent of the statute was to get away from that old bifurcation and to say, look, the platform host can engage in some moderation decisions, a whole huge range of moderation decisions. We're going to give enormous discretion so long as one can say it's in good faith. There's some good faith reason for doing it, which is a very low threshold. And they do not, therefore, assume The enormous responsibility that a publisher, uh, let's say the publisher of my last book, Oxford University Press, it publishes a lot of books, but it's a tiny, finite number compared to the countless numbers of posts that are on social media every day. Dwarf what the number of books that Oxford puts out in a year. So Oxford, of course, can be held responsible for all of the contents of what it affirmatively chooses to publish. And I think that affirmative decision is present there in the traditional publisher, which is not at all there when you're talking about a social media platform. It's much more like the landline telephone, right? A common carrier that anybody can come along, except that they also have some discretion in good faith to impose some limits. Now, don't get me wrong, Adam. I am a very severe critic of how the major social media companies have exercised their enormous discretion, and a synonym for discretion is power, in making these so-called content moderation decisions. They have used that power in ways that are arbitrary at best, discriminatory at worst, and I think it really is a big threat in a democracy where we the people really are now reliant, overly reliant on these dominant social media giants for all of our communications and in particular for information and communications with and about those we elect to govern us. And, you know, they're unaccountable in how they exercise that power. So believe me, I am no apologist or defender for the the content moderation policies, but (laughs) I have to say, as compared to what? As compared to the FCC and the FTC, and it doesn't matter whether it's the Trump administration or any other administration, I fear big government even more than I fear big social media companies. So I think, to me, this is a situation where the so-called cure that Trump has come up with, I agree with him, there's a problem. The cure is worse than even worse than the disease.
2: Thank you very much for that. With the stage kind of nicely set, I'd like to open up the conversation to the rest of the panelists.
3: I think that what
4: Nadine just laid out is really interesting also when you look at how we've gotten to this point, not just in terms of the legislation, but in terms of how the technology has changed. Because Section 230 came about at a time when we had AOL, Prodigy, and CompuServe. We had Walled garden platforms that were allowing us to get access to the internet itself. Those were the primary ways of doing it. And then, you know, the web came along and became this open standard that we all used. And now we have a new walled garden system that is allowing us to access each other and to access content. But we're now having to look at Section 230 maybe in a different way because when we began, it was the Wild West and platforms at the time were trying to get the status of distributor so that they would have less liability than publisher. But then Section 230 made that even more protection for the platforms at the time because of how the technology worked. And there was this idea that you couldn't possibly moderate all of your content. You couldn't possibly censor all of it. But today we're able to see to some extent that that is not true any longer that platforms can successfully omit certain content from their platform, that they're not truly free and open spaces anymore because of the way the technology has changed during that period of time. I think it makes a lot of sense that we have to be re-looking at how this works at this point in time, just because of the natural cycles of technology and the natural evolution of where we are now.
5: I want to throw this to Ben, who's been reporting on the efforts the executive order the president promulgated last week in an effort to do to his own battle, essentially, with Twitter. Ben, walk us through what that was all about and, and what, from your reporting, has been the reaction from people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Michael. And so what we saw initially was Twitter, for the first time ever, flagging two of Trump's tweets about mail-in voting, as for the little tag under it that said, get the facts, and which redirected uh, people to places such as CNN, such as the New York Times, that provided information that was counter to that that Trump had said, which was, you know, saying that mail-in ballots are going to everybody, period, even dead people in some instances. And the fact that they added these sparked a lot of outrage from him, sparked some outrage from the conservative community more generally. And what happened after that is we started to hear chatter and kind of an announcement from Trump itself that there was going to be action on this later in the week. And so, you know, I believe it was Thursday, we saw a draft executive order that was leaked. And it was, you know, we found out from later reporting, it was a version, an updated version of an order that had been circulating in the White House for years. So this had been, you know, updated with new language in some instances, but it still internally had a couple of moments that were incoherent, that were seemingly at odds with each other, even within this own executive order. And a more refined version of that was actually signed on Friday excuse me, I believe it was Thursday evening. But what that really looked to is it said that, you know, websites of any size. So this is a 20-person website for a cooking club, for example, and this is simultaneously Facebook, should lose all Section 230 protections. no qualifications. They're all of them if they don't follow their own terms of service or give you know users a notice when they're going to be removing content. Additionally, there were provisions about how Attorney General Barr should be essentially the judge of whether advertising money from the government is being received by these websites if these websites are deemed, you know, kind of, quote, problematic vehicles for government speech because of, and this is, again, quote, viewpoint discrimination, which is interesting because you have the government laying out what a viewpoint discrimination is for a private company who, you know, has generally had every right to do so, agree with it or not. And then finally, there was sort of a roundabout way to get some legislation before Congress seemingly, but it called for the FTC to take a look at websites and see if they were engaging in septic advertising under a number of different categories. So there's a lot going on in this order, but there are a few key pieces that, and I feel like those are maybe the large takeaways from it right now.
5: So what's so striking about this to me was the polarizing of the debate around it, because to start with, there was a consistent outcry against what was seen as Twitter actually not living up to its terms of service for not censoring in some way, or at least censuring Trump, a lot more concern in many respects about what was seen to his apparent calls for violence as well. And this is the one that actually triggered them. And so this was seen as from the perspective of those in support of Twitter's move here to say, hey, this is, yes, a private company that has its right to make these decisions under that structure. And B, this is an incredibly powerful human being with a massive platform of information who seemingly is flouting those, those rules. How has that debate played out here, Ben? What has been the position, if you like, on the two sides of that debate and whether Twitter, in fact, should be able to make these decisions?
1: So I think that, uh, and, and you know, Nadine kind of got to this in the initial parts of the conversation, that debate about, about fairness and about sort of the editorial aspect here is separate in some ways from 230. 230 provides such sort of unilateral protection for these platforms that they are not going to be liable for some of this content that's on there. But if we're looking at the political debate, you have members of Congress like Josh Hawley, who have for a long time been decrying what they perceive he perceives as sort of intent crews amongst others as sort of the editorial discrimination and silencing of conservative voices of platforms like Twitter and Facebook. On the other side, you do have you know, sort of democratic lawmakers and more liberal individuals criticizing the platforms for continuing to host content that in some instances have demonstrated white supremacist tendencies, and then others incited violence and you know, doxing and other behaviors like that. And so this is just sort of, it seems to be people arguing about the same things. And if you're Twitter, in a lot of instances, you're stuck here in a thing where you're not really going to win, seemingly. And, and in some ways, when the shooting starts, the looting starts was, was a secondary tweet flagged that Trump issued and was kind of harkening back to civil rights era mayors in the South calling for crackdowns on community colors in violent ways. That is the point where it sort of devolved, at least from my perspective, seemingly into a tit-for-tat competition in some ways, where they struck back at Trump with a really strong statement saying that this you know, executive order was just political and, and wasn't really reflective of a lot of different things, and then went on to go and flag that tweet. So the debate's become quite muddled about what role Twitter should play or not. But similarly, earlier this week, you've seen Facebook uh, employees start to speak up against the lack of action taken on Facebook against some of these issues, including that same tweet from Trump, which he also sort of reposted on Facebook, and Mark Zuckerberg chose not to take any action of it. We've seen an internal walkout from Facebook in the last couple of days in which I believe about 400 employees have put up out-of office messages and not reported for work. And indeed we've seen some Facebook employees quit over the decision for lack of moderation on this. So we're starting to see this controversy kind of extend outwards to the larger platforms who maybe thus far had avoided some of the Twitter secular nature of it thus far.
5: I think the most important framing for this in many respects is that when we talk about the platforms now, we're not talking about websites of 20 people. We are specifically talking about a very small number of very, very large institutions that have become a form of public commons, right? But they're not. They're privately controlled. So this conversation around the rights of Twitter, the obligations and so forth, gets down to this kind of fairness idea that essentially, hey, we should better just leave and go somewhere else. But if you have that much power, right, it's a, it's a conversation that's no different as far as I'm concerned than that which, you know, Teddy Roosevelt made the country have at the beginnings of, of the 19th century to talk about the power of standard oil or any monopoly. The very idea of a monopoly having that much domination is just that they're not setting prices, they're not manipulating prices, because we're not talking about price in the same context. We're talking about data as a currency here. So there's a control of data that is a, that is a unique capacity that you have when you're in this power. So I just want to, you know, have a really good by, point, Michael. Yeah. I mean, why don't you weigh in on that? I just think that this is this is where it's problematic. And so it might be very well that we can talk about these platforms as having these private company rights. But maybe they should lose those rights.
4: Right. Well, I mean, it connects with what Nadine was talking about, where it's similar to a phone line in that it's a public platform that anybody can choose to use, choose to join in some ways, except that there's the other side of that. And that's the side that we're talking about right now, which is, sure, but if the only way that I can get a telephone line is to go through AT&T and I don't want to do business with AT&T because of X reason, then what do I do now? Just not have a phone? Just not engage in the political conversation? And I feel like that's what most people are feeling faced with right now. Because if they're going to opt out of the public square that is maintained by a private company because the private company is not behaving in ways that they want to participate, well then where is the public square that they go to as an alternative? Or are they just silenced? Dr. Robert Epstein, who testified about. Google censorship before Congress in 2019, he makes a suggestion that AT&T's 1956 consent decree sets precedent that parts of things could be made public to solve for that problem. So with with his case, he's talking about Google. And so he says that based on that, the index of Google could be made public, like the, the index itself is the public utility But that then the algorithms that search for it and deliver that information to the user in whatever customized way that they choose to, that those could remain proprietary and that that could be a potential solution to some of these problems that we're looking at.
0: Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange.
5: Where are we going to draw these lines is a key question. But Dean, you know, you have made that point to start with about like, them being private companies, but yet they've amassed this enormous power. The First Amendment cannot apply to them, but in a weird sort of way, maybe it should.
3: What would you well, say? Well, we certainly need to have a solution. And uh, I shouldn't even say a solution. I think of this as, you know, what is the lesser of all the available evils here, right? Because Let me tell you what my ideal solution would be. This goes back to the beginning of the internet when uh, the Communications Decency Act and another portion of it that the Supreme Court unanimously struck down in a lawsuit I was happy to be involved in, Reno versus ACLU, uh, was imposing government-imposed content moderation standards outlawing anything that was considered to be indecent or patently offensive and what we argued for and what the Supreme Court agreed was that ideally there would be end user filtering and blocking, deciding what each parent or each family or each individual wanted to see or didn't want to see. And that was what we thought would happen when we had those provisions of the CDA struck down. And so it's it's terrible that now we've ended up with at the distribution end rather than at the receiver end, one size fits all. Content moderation is the opposite of what we were seeking to achieve. And there have been a number of lawsuits where people who have had their posts taken down or have been banned altogether have sued various major social media sites and and said, there should be an exception to this usual requirement that the First Amendment only applies to government. By the way, the technical name for that doctrine is the state action doctrine, thinking of state as, you know, not just, a, a New Jersey or, or New York, but a state as in the state of Israel so forth, um, that the state action doctrine has an exception when the private sector entity is carrying out what has traditionally exclusively been a government function an analogous case has gone to the Supreme Court, but the lower courts that have directly ruled on these arguments in the context of social media companies have said that exception just doesn't apply here. And I have to say, an organization whose work I think is terrific in this area, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has in all of these cases filed briefs against that kind of exception saying, yeah, there are problems with the great power that's wielded by the social media companies." but it would be even worse to take away the discretion of private sector communicators and subject them to the government. I'm old enough that I remember the so-called fairness doctrine that the FCC used to enforce with respect to the broadcast media. And information keeps coming to light, not surprisingly, that that doctrine, which was supposed to be guarantee neutral information about and balanced, fair and balanced information about controversial subjects, surprise, surprise, it was enforced in a completely partisan way to silence and punish those who were critical of whatever administration was, was in
5: power. Which is the very reason why the First Amendment is in place, right? To try to protect us from that. Is the acknowledgement that that power is, is all-powerful.
3: I do really um, gravitate to Amy's and others' ideas about we have to find other ways of constraining this power. It is economic power, so perhaps pro-competition, antitrust remedies would apply.
5: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the monopoly power thing gets kind of interesting in this context. But Ben, what are your thoughts on this? Because as I say, you've been diving into this for some time.
1: Yeah, I think the the main point I wanted to make, I guess, Michael, when talking about smaller websites too, is that this executive order just doesn't discriminate between the Facebooks of the world and these smaller websites. And so if you want to create a model for less censorship, which is kind of the, the headline banner of this order, doing so in such a way that might simultaneously take down some of the sites that could be alternatives to Twitter and Facebook because of the liability implications, that isn't it. Um, and I think, Nadine, you talked on this and sort of if Section 230 is the wrong vector through which to go at this issue and also grapple with the underlying centralized business models, antitrust might be just an alternative mechanism for, for doing that. You know, we're gonna get to the business models soon, but one thing I did wanna point out in this context is you know, these aren't sort of people sitting in an ivory tower that are doing these moderation decisions quite often. The the business models that these companies are working on, and, and Facebook, you know, I guess in particular. It's also at a detriment to the moderators themselves. These aren't Facebook employees. These are usually third-party outsourced contractors. You know, Adrian Chen did good reporting on this on Wired. I did a story on this on Rolling Stone in 2017. And then recently, Casey Newton at The Verge has been covering this. But you have moderators that are dealing with PTSD from reviewing hours of, of horrific, horrific images and content, kind of devolving to substance abuse. And they're trying to grapple with all these ways, which they argue without proper mental health supports to just do their day-to-day job for you know, what was a minimal wage in some points. And so I just wanted to briefly take a moment to recognize people that are doing this are also dealing with the fallout of a lot of these decisions that are made, but not reaping what some might see as the benefits of it.
5: To me, this is the key point. This is and then it's, this is the business model question because to me, Section 230 was created in an environment, in the 1990s, when they're really actually what, people hadn't figured out how to make money in the open platform model, there was a bunch of websites that were being used. Amazon and others were starting to sell money. But in terms of how you made money from content, AOL, Prodigy, were sort of being defeated. So how was Google? How was Facebook? How were these companies going to make money? And ultimately, it was Google that hit upon this. I mean, this. I'm, I'm going to borrow heavily from the book that's influenced me significantly here, and that is Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism book. And it's this sudden realization that you could do advertising on the platforms, not just advertising by the publishers who would have their own advertising relationship, but now there's an advertising on the platform model. And the the magic source that you had was the algorithm that would help you create moderation for the purposes of finding these ideal audiences that you could now carve up and define in your own interests. And what we've done, this is fundamentally how essentially the business models of these institutions have risen, is that they've created algorithms that help them both re-entrench their power and build feedback loops, working on all sorts of you know, things like the endorphin releases that we have when certain things happen, the unique identities of individuals that can be mapped by our behavior to see that we are going to respond to certain information. So what was initially a much more neutral platform that was going to be just our friend's latest post on Facebook is now curated for the purposes of trying to deliver us, along with all of those who are like us and, and not those who are unlike us as packages to advertisers on the Facebook or the Twitter platform. So you've now got this moderation facility that was, that was enabled by Section 230 for the purposes of good faith that is the fundamental underlying structure of the business model to how you deliver value to advertisers. And it works to the detriment of both the publishers and the users because it sits in the middle of their capacity to intermediate with each other or to directly speak to each other now intermediation is being determined by these entities in the middle I and mean, i get i get upset about this because i think it is actually what killed journalism it wasn't the battle and journalism is still thankfully alive but like the massive damage that was done to journalism was not actually that we were all fighting and competing with bloggers and citizen journalists and so forth but that publishers had lost their capacity now to actually talk directly to their advertisers cuz the the mechanism by which it was being delivered was being moderated by these algorithms that they had no control over. The idea of an open bazaar that the internet would be with all these ideas competing with each other and the best one would win is a myth because it's not being dictated by an open set of choices by all of the users. It's being dictated by an algorithm that none of us can have any control over, acting in the interest of the advertisers. And and now to Ben's point, it's not even the algorithm within. Google or Facebook itself, it's these third party manipulations of all of that infrastructure. So, this is where Zuboff's idea that we've kind of almost living in the matrix because our behavior is being determined by these machines. So, I find this a really kind of really scary scenario. And I think it is inseparable from Section 230 because the question of moderation is now integrally connected to a business model that is entrenching the power of these institutions and really manipulating how our information is passed to us. And so we're in the middle of these riots. And what we're seeing about what we think, you know, if, if you're somebody who is in favor of Black Lives Matter, your feed's going to be showing you a whole bunch of information about how these peaceful protesters are getting manipulated by by others and so forth. And all about the violence that's being applied to black people. If you're from the other side and you're concerned about civil unrest and and a real feeling that there's these crazies that are looting everything, you're going to see all of that. How on earth do we have a constructive Social national debate over how to deal with this when information is being manipulated in this way. It's a really problematic scenario. So, I, ju- I want to just, when I talk about this being the business model, it is integrally the business model, but it affects everything that we do in terms of how we communicate as a society. At the end of the day, to me, it's the business model. How do we get beyond it?
3: Well, I'm not an expert in business. Uh, uh, and I, I was nodding and shaking my head all at the same time through that troubling. Uh, explanation and and information. The First Amendment and the idea of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, not to mention all of our other freedoms, really is premised on a fundamental assumption of individual autonomy, right? That the ideal is that each of us will be Free to independently make our own choices to decide what we will see and will not see, and so on and so forth. And you know, the troubling information that you so well summarized uh, shows that we are in danger of not really being autonomous, free human beings. We are being manipulated. We're, we're pawns, and so. The whole basic assumption uh, as the prerequisite for meaningful free speech rights is being eviscerated by the business model.
5: So so what's, what's fascinating about that as well, though, is that there's this thesis, and I think it's incontrovertible, to be honest, that you can't have a market. The concept of a free market is impossible without free will it ceases to be a mechanism for setting prices if decisions are not being made autonomously by the agents. And the
3: same thing for the free marketplace of ideas.
5: It's essentially the yeah, the same same functionality. But Amy, there's a way out of this maybe. <laughs>
4: <laughs> hope so. I really
5: hope so. <laughs> Before we go to what those solutions may or may not be, we're still about this question of how, is it is it something that we can the market itself or let's just say private enterprise can can bring about by sort of inviting change for people, to draw them out of this almost dependency on these platforms, these communities that they've now globbed onto? How do we draw them out? Can we do that through the mechanism of the market, the private sector? Do we have to you know, essentially legislate our way in a kind of a Teddy Roosevelt approach to bring us there?
4: Yeah. So what really struck me when Nadine was speaking earlier about a case that she was involved in is that the assumption that they had made was that the users would be in control of something. And I think that that's really the key and that that's really what we're looking at when we talk about the shift to Web3. Web3 means that the power that's currently centralized in the sort of hub and spoke model that we're in gets pushed to the ends of the network so that individual users become agents on their own behalf in setting what their preferences are in terms of whether that's pricing or ethical considerations for how they might want to interact with content or the kinds of spaces that they want to be in, whether or not they want to see everything unmoderated or if that they want to have those moderation services.
5: So tell us a bit about Open index protocol. And I, and I need to make a disclosure here because uh, um, I founded a company before I joined Coindex that I'm, I moved to be the non executive chairman of. It's called Streambed. And I was so struck by OIP that I, um, you know, we, we decided Streambed to build on top of it for the sake of tapping into what I see as an indexing system that allows us to move beyond that dependence on the platform. But why don't you talk a little bit about what uh, OIP is and, and other models like it and why it's potentially so important for? resolving some of these challenges?
4: The main thing to think about is what we've been talking about in terms of the private space versus public space on the internet or on the web. All of these companies like Twitter and Facebook and Google are private and so they maintain all of their own indexing and distribution infrastructure and therefore they have complete control over what content we access and how we access it. What Open Index Protocol is, Is a specification that you can think of like a complement to HTTP that is like the indexing specification for it. So any sort of public information can be put into Open Index Protocol. Then any platform can display and potentially sell, if it's a commercial bit of information, that content according to the terms that were put into that, that record that's in Open Index Protocol. Think of Open Index Protocol like the card catalog in a library where you're putting all of the metadata and even like the location information for the content. The content itself isn't an open index protocol, just like the card catalog doesn't actually have the book. It just tells you the location in the stacks in the library. Same kind of idea here. It tells you the location in the peer-to-peer network. And so by creating a truly public space that is functionally maintained by the users of it, it creates this Divide that we don't really have on the internet right now, or on the web to be more specific, right now, because the way that Web 2 works is that it's all of these hosted private spaces. And that's what makes it so convenient and so easy to use. And it was really important in scaling the web from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. There's a great story about kind of Usenet versus Reddit. They're both discussion boards, but Usenet was a protocol. And because of the friction involved in maintaining a protocol, Reddit ultimately won out because it was a centralized place where user needs or implementation upgrades or things like that could be immediately handled by a small group of people without a lot of consensus. And so that just kind of illustrates why we went the centralized route or why the technology industry in general has ended up in this walled garden model that we're currently in. And it also goes hand in hand really with Bitcoin because during that phase of the web, there wasn't native internet money. And so in order to monetize, those platforms really needed their walls to protect their revenue streams and to be able to offer those services to monetize however their business model works. And so when we look at what Bitcoin opens up in terms of native internet money, and then we use that same technology to make public data open, it really changes the model and puts the power back in the end user's hands, which is really important in solving the problem we're talking about today.
5: So this is kind of this layer one, layer two thing, right? So that we need to have some base layer that we can all trust to be essentially immutable it's a protocol it's it, it does a bunch of things has metadata in it that we can all rely on that won't be taken down that fully is tied to the publisher or the producer of that information but that these other sort of conversational aspects of it the interface that the users have exist a layer above that right
4: yes exactly And so that layer two, that's where the platforms can live and provide those services to the end users and curate the content or make a platform that is just focused on a specific kind of content so that you're not syncing all kinds of the public data that's in OIP, right? There's property records from Wyoming and there's scientific data from Caltech and there's music files and there aren't very many apps that are going to want to show all of those side by side. And so at that layer two, those platforms can filter that data and curate it and serve it to the end users however they want. And so you get that divide between the public space and the private space.
5: And how does that enable smaller players potentially to come up though and compete, right? Because it's still ultimately one of the biggest problems is this dependency on the community that these large platforms have. How does this structure allow, say, a smaller player to come in and and suddenly now play a viable alternative so that it is possible for a user to say, you know what, I am going to say goodbye to Facebook for this and go over to somebody else.
4: Yeah, well, what's really exciting is that because the content in Open Index Protocol can be accessed by anyone, it means that, let's say I'm um, a musician and I put a song into Open Index Protocol and I want to sell that song. I can put my pricing and my distribution terms into that record with my song. And I can say that any platform can sell it for me on my behalf. And if they do, they're going to get 20% of that sale or whatever the terms I want to be. And so what that does is it incentivizes and creates a reason for those smaller platforms to compete with one another to serve the end users. Because right now, the reason that these platforms are where you go is because they're the biggest, like you just said, that's 100% the reason. And that's going to change in the same way that at some point it was sacrilege to say that AOL might not be the top dog, right? Things are going to change because the technology is moving forward and we're sort of on the inevitable journey to web three as we speak. And so the friction that we're talking about, the fact that there is an executive order about this, all of these issues are going to be ultimately what pushes that change forward in a whole variety of ways. But the way that new businesses on Web3 will make money is still by providing those private space platform-like services, but they'll be doing it starting from a level playing field where instead of competing just because I have the biggest um, network effect and therefore I win, I'm the biggest, I'm going to tell everybody what to do, they're going to compete because all of the data will be the same and be available. So they're going to compete based on how they serve their end users. And that's going to increase the quality of that service. Because right now, as we said in the kind of beginning of this conversation, it's like, where do you go if you don't like what's happening on Twitter right now? There's not really. An alternative where you can access the same amount of data or the same amount of people. And that's what this shifts. So um, you can access the same data, but you can control your own private space to serve your specific niche users.
5: It's it's the empowerment of the creator that I find so enticing about it, because that's where I feel in many respects have lost their capacity to communicate on their own terms and set the terms by which they talk to the their audiences and therefore create themselves a market that will then enable essentially a, a choice to be made by their users. Nadine, you've been listening in and you know, you've know you thought a lot about this stuff. What are your thoughts on all this?
3: Um, unfortunately, I'm not an expert on business or technology, but I'm I'm trying to learn as much as I can from experts. I love what Amy says. It's thrilling. And uh, to me, it overlaps with the theme that's been stressed by Electronic Frontier Foundation on interoperability. They recently issued a series of papers on this theme, Fix the Internet, Not the the Tech Companies, and one of them is headlined Adversarial Interoperability, basically making the substructure available to everybody, reviving an elegant weapon from a more civilized age to slay today's monopolies. You know, this is the goal of the First Amendment and the whole Bill of Rights is to empower us individuals. It was the goal of the the sponsors and the writers of Section 230, given the internet of their time, 230 seemed to be well designed to do that. I just want to read you one statement from the two co-authors of what they wanted to achieve. We want to encourage online platforms to do everything possible for the customer to help us control at the portals of our computer, at the front door of our house, what comes in and what our children see. So today, I think we have the same goals, but we just have to have different approaches for realizing them. And I'm thrilled by the hopefulness I feel now.
5: Good to hear. That's a wonderful ideal to, to, to go to. the Because it's about the other part of it. I said the empowerment of the creator is, on one level, what Amy's, in some respects, doing. But, of course, at the same time, this notion that we can empower the user to decide what they do and don't look at. So, Ben, one of the problems with this, of course, is that people feel, I mean, maybe they don't pay as much attention to it as they should, but we're giving up a lot of privacy at the moment in the decisions that we make. Every single decision we make becomes some sort of trackable element very quickly, because I've just opened up a can of worms, um, your sort of thoughts, because we're running out of time here, if you can just give some thoughts from your perspective as a privacy reporter, what aspects need to happen here?
1: Right. There's a whole lot to unpack there. And <laughs> it is a whole <laughs> can of worms that we're trying to upend, you know, sort of our status quo business models in this regard. But I do think, you know, you know speaking to Amy's points a little bit, and then, Michael, you're in sort of endeavors in this, that we are starting to really try to envision and ask different questions about what that future might look like. And those might not be yet on the level of a Twitter or on the level of a Facebook in terms of the amount of people on them and also the power they yield. It really takes a lot of work for people to start thinking about these things differently. And that takes time and that takes, to some level, people being okay with a certain amount of friction. You know, you reference that people aren't paying attention and they're making these choices and giving up their privacy, but that's because those choices are so easy right now. In some instances, these walled gardens, which utilize also API plugins and everything else, just try to let you move between these spaces as easily as possible. And the toll that you are charged is varying levels of personal data that can be monetized, can be sold, can be repurposed for a number of different orientations. And so I think we're seeing a a rise of discussions around private by design technology and that's not just in relation to um, contact tracing apps, which is a big debate right now, but it is in also in relation to what are the underlying protocols that we're developing capable of and how can they be co-opted for either monetization purposes or also for things like NSA surveillance and state level surveillance. If you create tools that don't allow for those mechanisms to be exploited, then you have a whole different conversation on your hands. So I think you know, we're working towards those sorts of things. We're working towards re-envisioning what the sort of social contract on the internet we have might be. And I think that's going to be questions that we're obviously going to be covering in the future, but one that we're inevitably going to have to come up with a variety of answers to.
5: It's a fascinating way to think about the structure of this, right? Starting in some respects with, with privacy on the, on the user side and the public state of certain amounts of data that need to be there to allow this much more independent, open marketplace to exist around all these ideas. So there's almost like a, it's a bifurcation of the structure. Is that is that a fair way to describe it, Amy, just quickly?
4: Yeah, I think so. And I think the only other thing to say is that it's really a market on both sides. It's a market because the creators putting that content into the world can determine their terms and their pricing, but it's also a market in that the platforms, the new platforms who are building on that can decide what their community standards are and what their distribution terms are and what their pricing is. And so... The two sides of that market, and then of course the users being this other aspect to it, are really going to redefine these issues in the coming decade, I think.
5: Nadine, I was just want to throw to you the last word, if you don't mind, very quickly. For our democracy, for our civil liberties, what does all this mean?
3: What does it mean? It means the first thing that pops into my head is a slogan that the ACLU often recites a statement attributed to Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And it's really true that with every changing circumstance, economically, technologically, politically, we have to constantly look at new threats to the same old freedoms and new strategies for protecting them. And by the way, when we say civil liberties, they can be endangered not only by the government. That's why we have the American Civil Liberties Union, not the American Constitutional Law Union. We believe that when there are private sector entities that wield enough power, they can suppress our meaningful free speech and other civil liberties. So that means the solutions have to lie outside law outside regulation. And I really love the technological and business and market-based solutions that this wonderful group is coming up with.
5: Great to hear that. And so for me personally, this has been a fascinating conversation. I find it's, um, Coindesk is like any good news organization will lift ourselves apart from the topics we cover, but inevitably when you're talking about issues around freedom of expression and just the rights, if you like, of how we communicate with each other, inevitably it starts to become close to home as part of your own topics. And It's certainly been something that I think that I've been concerned about for some, some time. So I'm going to thank all of you. I think Adam's going to say a few words just to to wind it off, but Nadine, Amy, Ben, uh, and Adam, thanks very much for facilitating this conversation.
3: Thank you so much.
4: Absolutely. It's been fun.
2: And while this conversation is far from over, that is all the time that we have for today. We'd like to thank our panelists for taking the time in this crazy week to share your perspectives with our audience. The audience can find links to all of your various works in the show notes for this episode, On behalf of Coindesk.com and the Coindesk Podcast Network, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us. You can tell us what you think about this topic by sending an email to podcast at Coindesk.com with a subject that contains Section 230. And for more daily analysis, discussions, interviews, and insights, subscribe to the Coindesk Podcast Network on your favorite podcast player.